Hi everyone, welcome to what is doubtless going to be one of two or possibly three parts of a podcast that we're going to do on banderism, specifically on the history of the OUN, or the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, Ukrainian collaboration with the Germans in World War II in Ukraine and its after-effects. Now, this is a very, very lengthy topic, which is why I've talked about us possibly having two or three parts to this podcast. The reason it will take so long is, unlike some other aspects of the Second World War, it is not very well known outside of the in- outside of the Russian-speaking world, I should say. Not so well known in the English-speaking world. But, therefore, it also means that we will need to cover it in a bit more detail than we might otherwise do in a podcast. So therefore, like our Russia in the 1990s series, which we will be continuing with, this will be something more of a detailed and historical podcast. It is meant, therefore, to be listened to to understand the current context of the conflict in Ukraine, but also stands in its own right as a for-information historical podcast that can help you learn more about history, both of Ukraine and also of the Second World War, and also we will, yes, be touching on the Holocaust. As we will see, these things are inseparably linked. Indeed, historians such as Adam Tooze, or rather the ones that we will be using for today, namely Grigor Rosolinsky Liba, Tarek Sewol Amar, and Alexander Statiev, have shown that the Holocaust must be thought of as perhaps the central thread that runs through the Nazi war of aggression throughout all of Europe, and especially when it comes to the history of the Soviet Union. Last Friday, in the Canadian Parliament, the cheering by the entire federal Canadian political class of an SS veteran, a Waffen-SS veteran of the 14th Waffen-SS Galician Division, also shows that while the Second World War may be nearly 80 years behind us, history is not so dead. Indeed, history can often show up right in your very midst and show that it isn't just dead people, it very much affects the world that we live in right now. I am very happy to be joined by our founder, Jebu, and of course by my co-host, Lydia. Welcome all. Welcome both. Very excited about this episode. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Yeah. Where exactly to begin, though, with the O-U-N-O-U-N-B, O-U-N-M, Waffen-SS, Galician, and the U-P-A, which you can call UPA from the Ukrainian acronym and how it would be pronounced, or BUPA in English. It's a rather difficult subject to begin to start with because, as Grigor Rosolinsky Liba shows in his indispensable book, Stepan Bandera, The Life and Afterlife of a Ukrainian Nationalist, Fascism, Genocide, and Cult, to understand the phenomenon of Banderism and indeed Bandera the Man, you have to actually go back, I know it's kind of eye-rolling, to the late 19th century and to some Ukrainian romantic thinkers. Now, when we say romantic, we don't mean that, 
oh, they were very romantic people and they loved to write love letters to their sweethearts. We mean in terms of the German intellectual movement that uh, tried to rediscover a sort of primordial past, which could mean poetry, which could mean reaching deeper into history. So it inspired the search for archaeology. For example, Heinrich Schliemann, the archaeologist who founded Troy, was part of the broader Romantic movement, but also it could lead to a lot of ugly ethno-nationalism. So therefore, one should bear in mind that when we say the Romantic movement, that one of the antecedents, the intellectual antecedents of Nazism, is the Romantic movement. So you should bear that in mind when we say Romantic, romantic movement. So I think the one that we will want to start with in terms of the origins of Ukrainian nationalism is with, ironically enough, an Eastern Ukrainian. I say ironically because although, for very good reasons, as we will cover, Bandarism and Ukrainian ultranationalism are primarily associated with Western Ukrainians, not Eastern Ukrainians, Bandera and Shukhevich were both Western Ukrainians. Eastern Ukrainians nonetheless have both at times been susceptible to it and sometimes been intellectual practitioners. For example, we must not ignore the fact that although a lot of the Azovites originally are from Western Ukraine, their original base of power was in Kharkov. And so therefore, a lot of the Tufts who were recruited and who have done a lot of the murdering on behalf of Azov and as part of Azov during this war are themselves from eastern Ukraine. But why bring up Michnovsky? Well, Michnovsky was someone who originally set out the ideal of a Ukrainian state that would later become recognizable when you consider the OUN or Ukrainian ultra-nationalism. He, Mikhnovsky said that there should be a Ukraine for ethnic Ukrainians, or in Ukrainian, and I'm going to mangle this because I'll be saying it in a kind of Russian accent, Ukraina dla Ukraintsev. So he also said that what he wanted was a Ukraine from the Carpathian Mountains to the Caucasus Mountains. So therefore, Ukrainian ultranationalism is not satisfied with Ukraine in its current borders and never has been. Indeed, doesn't see the current set of borders as its natural borders, but rather as restricted borders. And he also said he wanted a Ukrainian state without foes. I quote from Rosalinsky Liba, By foes, Michnovsky meant, quote, Russians, Poles, Magyars, Romanians, and Jews, as long as they rule over us and exploit us, end quote. So, Michnovsky also was the one to come up with the Ten Commandments for a party that he formed that was short-lived called the Ukrainian National Party, or the Ukrainian People's Party, or perhaps given the way Narod, the word Narod works in Russian, uh, it better translates in German than it does in English as, um, because in English it's all rendered as people, whereas in German, Narod is a bit more like das Volk rather than die Leute. So just bear that in mind. And one of the commandments that he gave this party was, I quote, 
do not marry a foreign woman, i.e. a non-ethnic Ukrainian woman, because your children will be your enemies. Do not be on friendly terms with the enemies of your nation, because you make them stronger and braver. Do not deal with our oppressors, because you will be a traitor. In other words, as Rosalinsky Liba writes, after centuries of coexistence with Poles, Russians, Jews, and other ethnic groups, um, it was impossible to continue living together because he viewed, as Rosalinsky Liba says, um, any marriage between Ukrainians and non-ethnic Ukrainians as contamination. Um, there were other intellectuals who were around, such as Grushevsky, but Grushevsky, while he was a romantic, he wasn't an ultranationalist fanatic, and even towards the end of his life, tried to make something of, you know, by getting in good with the Soviet project, and he died in his bed in Kiev. But also relevant for Stepan Bandera was the experience of the First World War, or rather the Civil Wars, because Bandera himself was born in what was the Habsburg Empire on 1 January 1909 to Andre Bandera, who was a Uniate church priest, and he was one of nine children. Uh, you know, times were as they were back then, so very abnormal now, not quite so abnormal then. What is the Uniate church? Okay. It basically is part of the Catholic Church, but it retains Eastern Orthodox rites, and even a lot of the church architecture, the vestments of the bishops and the priests, and even some of the rules, and when, although not always, some of the holidays are celebrated is um, done by Eastern Orthodox rites. So it's part of the Catholic Church, but it looks like the Orthodox Church, but it's really part of the Catholic Church. It swears allegiance to Rome. It's often been the, a hotbed of Ukrainian ultranationalism, so that's another factor. So Bandera's first experiences, therefore, would have been, when he was about five, about World War I being declared, the weakness of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but much more especially after when he reached the age of nine, the formation of Ukrainian states. There was the West Ukrainian National Republic, or People's Republic, and then the Ukrainian People's Republic. The Western Republic was based out of Lvov, and we will be calling the city that is Lvov, Lvov, because that's how it's pronounced in Russian. That indicates our perspective. The Russians get it from the Polish pronunciation, which, while it looks like it's spelt in English, Lvov, is actually in Polish pronounced Lvov. Uh, in Ukrainian, it's Lviv, and in German, it's Lemberg. So we think we're being fair by calling it Lvov and not calling it Lemberg, even though we should call it Lemberg, because it was primarily before mm, about 1920, a mostly German city. So, therefore... Um, these two republics formed up in the detritus of the two collapsed empires in the area, i.e. the Habsburg Empire and the Romanov-Russian Empire, tried very unsuccessfully, and I do mean unsuccessfully, to create Ukrainian states. Mostly what they were, in the case of the Ukrainian National Republic, was a collection of warlord armies that nominally swore allegiance to 
the government in Kiev, which didn't really control much of Kiev. And in any case, just to show how history moves on, most people in Kiev actually despised the Ukrainian nationalist government or the UNR government and wanted either the whites or actually the reds to win. As a matter of fact, in early 1918, the reds um, were able to kick out the UNR because shortly before they arrived in February 1918, there had been an uprising of workers in the city of Kiev against the UNR that had been brutally suppressed by the so-called Sich riflemen, who, if you follow this war, are also among Ukraine's national heroes. So basically what the Sich makes the Sich riflemen so awesome is that they shot a bunch of mostly unarmed workers and then got sh uh, chased out of Kiev by a motley collection of Russian workers who were supporting the Bolsheviks, who were probably mostly from St. Petersburg and Moscow. So, so far, so Ukrainian. This is a pattern that will recur throughout here, where our super-duper Ukrainian patriots are often getting beaten not by Russia's A-team, not by Russia's B-team, but by Russia's C-team or D-team. So, so far, so consistent. I just love this. Not the A-team, not the B-team. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> are we, has has um, Bandera joined the, Hit the Ukrainian version of the Hitler Youth yet? Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're still in the origins. Okay, because great. So basically, the ZUNR, i.e. the West Ukrainian People's Republic, is destroyed by the Polish army, and the Ukrainian People's Republic is mo mostly falls apart because it's just a collection of warlords, and it's defeated by the Reds, mostly in 1919, and then is finished off in 1920. But they do find time to kill 60,000 Jews in pogroms, which, by the way, exceeds all the victims of anti-Jewish pogroms in the entire Russian Empire from 1881 to 1884, which was an especially bloody period because it was in the aftermath of the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, the great Tsar uh, Liberator, because, of course, for some reason, people blame the Jews because, well, why not? That's just what people seem to do, even if the Jews have nothing to, to do with it. So... Um, but don't worry, the Ukrainians managed to exceed that count in just one year. So Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian state is off to a great start by showing the human, democratic, and European values that it upholds by killing 60,000 Jews. Um, so, yeah, great start. Um, then the part of Ukraine that Bandera is in was absorbed by the Second Polish Republic, i.e. the Polish Republic in its borders as it existed from 1919 to 1939. Bandera himself was quite sickly as a child, and he tried to make up for this by rigorous exercise, and one of the ways he tried to make up for that was by, and, and exercising, was by joining an organization called PLAST, which, as uh, Chebu has rightly identified, is basically the Ukrainian equivalent of the Hitler Youth. Would you like to explain some about PLAST? Well, um, so PLAST was in, or Bandera was in a specific troop in Plost called the Gilder Rose. 
Um, and this is kind of where he started to get his OUN uh, associates. Um, he met uh, Okrimovich, uh, which who would later invite him uh, into the OUN. So this is really a, a lot. Uh, this is really the formative years of Bandera as a child. Um, also important to note that because of the time when Bandera was born, he was unable to um, attend primary school because the teachers were deployed uh, or were conscripted into the army. Um, so he was homeschooled by his, uh, his religious father and mother. Um, he stayed in Plast until uh, 1930. And the reason why uh, he was forced to leave Plast is because the Poles actually came and closed down these organizations um, they had they closed them in I believe 1928 in Volhina and 1930 in Galicia. So, um, but also during this time, he was involved in another uh, organization called OVKUH, um, which also included a number of future OUN members. Uh, <laughs> He, the OVKUH took care of patriotic upbringing. And so they oversaw kind of these other smaller nationalistic youth organizations. And interestingly enough, we'll talk about it later, but those sort of youth camps and organizations are very much still in existence today. Uh, Bandera, funnily enough, call, uh, also sang in a choir. And as JM noted, Bandera was a very sickly child. Um, in fact, his peers called him woman, the little, uh, gray because of his like pallor complexion and uh, little Stefan because he was so small. So his kind of his whole life was, uh, you know, kind of suffering from this Napoleonic complex. Um, I don't know how far ahead you want to go, but even as a youth, Bandera had run-ins with the law. He was arrested, I think, six times over the course of a year for trying to illegally cross the border, uh, the Polish-Czechoslovak border. Um, he was going there to meet with other OUN members in exile uh, and smuggle illegal uh, propaganda. But I think that we want to back up a little bit before we get there, because he did attend university in Lvov. Uh, yes, indeed. And one of the things, uh, before we get to the foundation of the OUN that I want to say, and this is something that needs to be borne in mind, is that Bandera was noted by all who met him as being very, very charismatic, which from our descriptions of him, you might think, oh, no, absolutely impossible. He's this uh, kind of, he's this short guy with a kind of squeaky voice. But apparently he just had a great magnetism to him. And I think when you look at pictures of him, you can kind of see that. Like when you see a picture of him that appears on page 95 of the book that we've so far been using, the one by Rosalinsky, Liba of Bandera in a folkloric uh, Cossack costume with um, a uh, rifle meant to hunt rabbits, you can kind of see the sort of manic energy in his eyes and sort of like the sense of playfulness because in that photograph it's clear he's not taking himself too seriously he's having some fun and on another photograph a few pages later from uh 
just shortly before he left, uh, Plast, the troop Chernova Kalina, uh, yes, you might have heard it in that stupid earworm song, uh, of all the people pictured there, despite the fact that he's one of the shorter ones, Bandera also looks to be the most confident and assertive. And it was said that whenever he spoke, he had this sort of hypnotic quality to him. And we're going to come back to his manic energy later because it's going to get turned into uh, very dark directions. But when he was a younger man, one of the things that Rosalinsky Leba recounts that he did was that, among other things, he got up, he climbed up a tree and to the rest of his plaster group did an imitation of a speech of, by Mahatma Gandhi. So the, 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 very impressive. <laughs> How did it go so wrong? <laughs> well, but also I think it just shows that um, I think he was probably going in a dark direction, but also it shows that what Bandera was is that he was at the time just a very politically aware young man, albeit uh, obviously his politics were pretty odious because of who he decided to fall in with. And this uh, shows why it was going to go wrong. It was always going to go wrong. It was just baked in. Yeah, I think that w when we're talking about nature versus nurture, in the case of Stefan Bandetta, like most other psychopaths, it's a good combination of both. But in his case, I do think it was mostly nature. Um, because regardless of whether he's charismatic or not, he was fanatic and the Gandhi speech, which is a very cute, endearing story. But even from a young age, he kind of exhibited fanatical leanings. I mean, he was arrested as a child for um, like ultra nationalism a couple times. <laughs> and um, we haven't talked about it yet, but even in his early adolescence, uh, adolescence, he would kind of torture himself to kind of, harden himself in case he was ever captured by the pole so even as a young uh child uh, adolescent he kind of knew about this sort of uh by any means necessary kind of thing and, and began like sliding pins under his nails and um, what? uh yeah he would beat himself he would uh burn himself on purpose with uh, an oil lamp he would crush his uh, hands and arms between, like, slam the door on his hands and arms, and he would yell at himself and say, Admit, Stepan! And no, I don't admit. If you don't improve, you'll be beaten again, Stepan. So uh, he was practicing, uh, he was torturing himself to practice being tortured on by the Polish police. That's what that was about. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, that's handy. <laughs> So he's like, while he's charismatic, there's also some exactly what JM said. There's some sort of maniacal energy that's just there. Some sort. What you <laughs> described is actually full on deranged. That's how I would describe it. But I don't know. Yeah. And I think also then we need to uh, bear in mind that, uh, again, what group Bandera was falling him because by the time he was leaving Plast, he was actually joining the newly constituted OUM. What was the OUM, and where was did it come from? Okay, so the OUM sprang out from the remnants of the so-called ZUNR and the UNR, what we've described before. Um. And actually, it had an antecedent organization to the one that was formed in 1929, which was called the UVO. 
Now, I forget what the exact Ukrainian is for UVO, but it stands for something like Ukrainian Military Organization. And so um, in Russian, that would be Ukrainska Vojennaya Organizacja, but I'm sure in Ukrainian, it's something with a lot more eyes, but let, let's stick with the Russian. Uh, and the UVO, among other things, in 1922, set 2,200 Polish farms on fire. Just to give you a little hint of who the UVO are. So, not okay, surprised. So, so the good guys. Yes, yes, uh, <laughs> according to them. Um, <laughs> uh, Lydia here is drier than a martini. So... Well, I, I am Russian, so what do you expect? That's how we are. But please continue, because I'm actually very invested in this story, because obviously they, they do teach us about some parts of it, but never in this much detail. So, in January 1929, the UVO met in Vienna, along with some other organizations, including youth activists from PLOS, but I don't know, I, I didn't take the proper notes to note down if uh, Bandera was at the founding conference of the OUN in Vienna, but he certainly joined uh, either at that conference or very shortly thereafter. So, in addition to the kind of Ukrainian nationalism that we have described so far, there was a new twist on ideology in the OUM. So not just murdering lots of Jews and also setting Polish farms on fire, but also fascism, brought to you by the kind of the joker of the OUN, because he never joined them, uh, just an agent of chaos. I, I don't know if he spoke like that, but um, some a guy who ended his life as <laughs> no surprises here, as a professor of Ukrainian literature at the University of Montreal, because, you know, why not, named Dmitro Donsov. So, uh, what did Donsov believe, and what did he expound? Um, the To quote Rosalinsky Liba, he, Donsov, um, sought to reverse the common or universal system of values and morality. Um, the fundamental concepts of his ideology included romanticism, so there, that linking thread as I mentioned, dogmatism, fanaticism, and also what Donsov himself called amorality, amoralnist in Ukrainian. Donsov argued that all deeds that would help Ukrainians to achieve a Ukrainian state, regardless of their nature, so I'm quoting here from the book, were moral and right. He thereby encouraged the younger generation to reject, quote, common ethics, unquote, to embrace fanaticism because, as he claimed, only fanaticism could change history and enable the Ukrainians to establish a state. Donsov's new system of morality was obviously problematic because it justified all kinds of crimes and violence as long as they were conducted for the good of the nation, or in order to achieve statehood. In general, the ideologist of the Bandera generation copied many of his ideas from other European far-right and fascist discourses, in particular German and Italian. And Donsov, by the way, was the first one to write and translate into Ukrainian Hitler's book Mein Kampf, because of course he did, and he extensively translated Italian fascist works. So, this is the sort of person who Canada, of course, accepts as a liberal democrat, because why not? 
For Donsoth, continuing here to quote, Hitler was the ideal of a fascist leader. And this is even before Hitler had risen to power in the so-called Machtergreifung. The Ukrainian ideologist compared the Führer to Jesus and to St. Joan of Arc. In addition to extreme nationalism and fascism, Donsov also popularized anti-Semitism. In the late 1930s, he opted for the racist kind of anti-Semitism preached and practiced by the Nazis in the Reich. Nazi Germany was for him the ideal fascist state, although it was the Italian fascists who first drew his attention to the phenomenon of fascism. In 1932, Donsov translated Mussolini's The Foundations and Doctrines of Fascism into Ukrainian and published it. So, uh, this is the kind of guy who is giving the new organization its foundational ideology. This is what Bandera is embracing. And Bandera is also currently going to university. And while he's going to university, he's mostly actually not going to class. Actually, Bandera spends five years at university, but never ever graduates with anything like a degree because he's too busy with his political work. But it must be said that his parents do not disapprove of this because they continue to support him going to university, even though they knew their son wasn't doing any kind of studying but political work because they supported his decision. So it cannot be said that Bandera suffered from excessively strict parents, given the fact that they were willing to subsidize him basically uh, running the fascist student union and also plotting terrorism on their dime. I guess uh, this is as good a time as any then to perhaps get into as Bandera and the OUN homeland executive, i.e. that part of the OUN that is in the parts of Poland claim that are now that were claimed by the Ukrainian nationalists for a Ukrainian nationalist state to talk about the assassination of the interior minister Bronislav Piraki in June 1934. Yeah, I think we can go right ahead because um, we're halfway through part one. So yeah, let's get into the trial because this is this is actually um, I think this is the tur- a turning point for o- the OUN. And why can you say that it was a turning point? Because the assassination um, really put the OUN um, sort of uh, on the map, in a way. Uh, they assassinated the Polish interior minister, uh, I believe it was 15 June 1934, and this is, caused an enormous schism in Polish-Ukrainian relations, uh, issues in Western and Eastern Galicia, and then the trial, which took place, which will be the first time that Bandera is sent to, is actually sent to prison, I believe, isn't it, JM? This is the first time he's ever, like, ever really serves or is ever ever really serves real time. Yeah, it is. Um, so you do you want to tell the story of the assassination, and then we'll get into the the trial, which is a whole other story. So actually, the story of Branislav Piraki getting assassinated um, has to be set in a few bits of context. First is the fact that Marshal Josef Puisudski had staged a military coup um, in 1926 that had ended the brief democratic period of the Polish Republic. And so Poland, by this point, was actually a dict- military dictatorship of a kind, 
with a political police. So um, anybody not part of a certain range of opinions was oppressed. Now, we shouldn't go too far. It wasn't like some really super authoritarian dictatorship, like, for example, that was going on in um, Franco's Spain, certainly not one of the fascist states, or even further to the north in (laughs) contemporary Estonia. It wasn't like that. It was just more of an authoritarian kind of democratic republic where the military was very influential. I guess it is how you could describe Pilsudski-era um, Poland. So, the context also was that um, Piraki was receiving a guest of honor visiting Poland and War- Warsaw when he was assassinated. And who was that guest of honor? Why, it was Josef Goebbels, of course, because this was part of the process of the signing of the Declaration of Non-Aggression between Poland and Nazi Germany in 1934. Um, However, then Piraki, after seeing off Goebbels, went about his day, and then, at 5.30 p.m. on 15 June 1934, Quoting here from Rosalinsky Liba, Piraki started walking towards um, a restaurant on Foxhall Street without his bodyguards. At this point, Georgi Matseko, because I'm not going to say Georgi Matseko, um, a 21 year old OUN member, began to approach him, shaking a parcel wrapped in paper from the Gazevsky confectionery. The parcel contained a makeshift bomb that Matseko was trying to detonate. The bomb did not explode. Its activation required a vigorous push on the detonator, a T-shaped metal piston which was designed to, cl- to crush a glass tube containing nitric acid. If Matseko had pushed a little harder, the tube would have broken and detonated the bomb, killing the government minister and himself. Once Matseko realized that he could not blow up both the minister and himself, he pulled a gun from his coat and ran towards Piraki, who had already passed him and was in the entrance of the restaurant. Catching up with him, Matseko shot twice at the back of Piraki's head. When the minister sank to the ground, Matseko fired a third shot but missed. The young assassin fled the scene, firing several times at his pursuers and wounding a policeman in the hand. So this is kind of like an evil version of the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. It's like, you know, the bit where fascists do an assassination of some uh, security police official. And also, um, a bit of something to say about Matseko. He was very sickly, but he managed to get away, and he actually died in Argentina. Because, of course, he did. Um, By contrast, however, those who did not get away were basically the entirety of the OUN homeland executive. Again, that part of the OUN that was inside the part of Poland that was claimed by the Ukrainian nationalists for a future Ukrainian state. Shortly before Piraki is assassinated, however, the entire homeland executive of the OUN has been wound up by the Polish police. Um, Bandera was being investigated and subsequently arrested before the assassination on a completely different set of um, 
plots that he was hatching to commit terrorism, because this assassination was planned by Bandera and the OUN homeland executive, but the Polish police got wind of them. Once they wound it up, however, and once they began looking for the assassin, they quickly found that they had the planners in their custody because the OUN homeland executive had not destroyed their files, and of course the Polish police found them. So, this is, and so therefore, obviously, they want to put the murderers of a senior government official on trial, and also because, although we haven't mentioned it by this point, the OUN has been committing terrorist outrages such as murdering Polish teachers, murdering Polish police, uh, murdering Ukrainians who do business with Poles and not with Ukrainians. Again, that whole formula of Ukrainians for ethnic Ukra Ukrainians that we encountered. So he's put on trial, he and the entire Ukrainian uh, OUN homeland executive for murdering Piraki. And this trial, however, is very important. Quote again from Rosalinsky Liba. The first stage of the political cult of Stepan Bandera came about as a result of the politically and ideologically steered emotions released by Piraki's assassination and by the two great trials against members of the OUN from 18 November 1935 to 13 January 1936 in Warsaw, and from 25 May to 27 June 1936 in Lwów. Immediately after the assassination, the Polish media, especially that connected to the Sanation movement, so Pilsudski's political movement, portrayed Piraki as a martyr and a hero. Um, and so as even Rosal as Rosalinsky Liba concedes, they kind of go overboard with this to the extent that uh, people are now, including patriotic polls, are writing in the newspapers to say, could you please stop talking about the martyr Piraki? We get it already. Um, so nonetheless, however, it's clear that the authorities take this trial very seriously. And indeed, even if they didn't want to um, sacralize Piraki, why wouldn't they? An inter the interior minister, the top police official of the country, had been murdered. This does demand, in any country, justice. Um, so, the trial from 18 November 1935 to 13 January 1936 involved the trial of 12 OUN members. Of course, Stepan Bandera, Daria Gnatskovskaya, uh, or in Ukrainian, Daria Gnatskivskaya, Yaroslav Karpenets, uh, Yevgeny Kaczmarski, uh, Mikola Klimshin, Mikola Lebed, who, by the way, also has quite a bit of notoriety, but I didn't take notes on him, so I won't quite be able to go into just why Lebed is quite infamous, but for good reason he is. Bogdan uh, Pidhaini, Roman uh, Michal, and if I'm struggling here with names, that's because uh, Ukrainian pronunciation doesn't make very much sense. Yaroslav Rok, Yakiv Chorny, and Katerina Zaritska. So it's not all men. It's not just a conspiracy of boys. There are also two women involved. So, and so in addition to the assassination of Piraki, they're also on trial for separatism because they intended to break up Poland and take away part of it, as I said, and establish a new Ukrainian ethno-state. And they certainly weren't going to stop at that. They also had their designs on all of the Ukrainian SSSR. 
Indeed, they'd actually uh, blown up the Soviet consulate in Lvov in 1933, or part of it, to as a protest against uh, the famine in the Ukrainian SSSR. So they're interrogated by the Polish police in preparation for the trial, and they promise to cooperate and be good because they don't want to get an even stiffer sentence, but then they just turn the trial into an absolute circus. They refuse to answer in Polish, even though the language of the trial isn't Polish and all of the defendants can speak fluent Polish. Um, and uh, whenever Bandera is questioned in Polish and asked, do you now promise to answer in Polish, he'll give some sort of answer in Polish that pro- where he promises to cooperate. And then when they try to resume questioning, he only answers in Ukrainian and starts shouting uh, political uh slogan. So, for example, when he was reminded to speak in Polish, he says, he said, the prestige of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists enjoins me to speak Ukrainian. Always a drama queen. Always the drama queen, the step on bandana. Yes, quite so. And then uh, when his lawyer tries to help him, Bandera jumped up again and informed the court in a resonant voice that he was abandoning his lawyer. The chair again asked Bandera to remain silent unless he'd been asked to speak and informed him and the other defendants that anyone who interrupted the proceedings would be removed from the courtroom. Surprised by Bandera's capricious move to abandon his lawyer, the latter asked for a court recess to confer with his client, which was granted. After the break, uh, Korobovi informed the court that Bandera had withdrawn his request to do without defense counsel. Um, So they try. They basically have the Ukrainian nationalists turn the entire court proceedings into a circus. Um, therefore, um, but here some interesting details emerge uh, in the trial, and this is uh, one of my favorite, um, which is that among other things that they identified that the Lithuanian government was the one which had financed the assassination of Piraki. Yes, you didn't mishear me, and I didn't just uh, say something wild. The government of Lithuania provided a thousand U.S. dollars a month to the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. Interesting. How's that for a plot twist? Interesting. Very interesting. Well, I mean, has Lithuania and Poland ever really gotten along? Uh, yeah, they used to be partners in crime in the Commonwealth. But I thought that there was still a healthy rivalry. Well, there was always a rivalry, but the issue was, of course, is that Poland uh, in the Second Republic occupied Vilnius, which, of course, the Lithuanians wanted for their national capital. Uh, but uh, the Poles said, yeah, you and what army is going to come and take it from us? So the Lithuanians weren't very happy about this, and they were forever scheming to undermine Poland. I love it. Scheming in the Baltics. Uh, Yes, to start great power wars and um, uh, try and therefore to become bigger. Um, Now, one might question the wisdom of, given what the Lithuanians were doing at this time, of uh, trying to piss off both the Soviet Union and Lithuania, but... You know, we can talk about um, Jonas Nareka and the and the Baltics another time. I'm sure we will. We kind of have to to 
get at all of the crazy. Um, but much more importantly for this trial, um, this is, is um, another thing that's interesting about what one of the defendants said. We shot not only at Poles, but also at our own people. Director Bobby, a, a Ukrainian uh, educator, was shot in this manner. And just as I learned, so was my closest colleague, Maria Kovalyukovna. Once the OUN dis applied terror to persons who were close to him, Malyutsa, like Mikhail, decided to break with the OUN strategy of denying the, ter of denying the terror. So they're also boasting about murdering other Ukrainians who are cooperating or collaborating, as they would say, with the Polish state. Um, much more ominously, though, is... Um, Chebu, do you want to introduce how exactly we get glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes? Sure. So we're in this... Um, <clears throat> JM already talked about how the witnesses refused to testify in Polish. Um, but... In order to add to the tomfoolery of the trial, uh, Vera Spinetsky, I can't say it, Spinetska. <laughs> My mouth doesn't work that way. Um, she, you know, she told the court that she she spoke Polish, but she would not testify in Ukrainian. So, as with the rest of the witnesses that had come before her, she was issued a fine of two hundred zlotys and then um, and ten days extra imprisonment. The bailiffs came to get her, apprehend her, and take her back to holding. And when she was walking past the dock uh, to the defendants, she yelled "Slava Ukraini," uh, and they all stood up and answered in the affirmative. And this is the very first recorded incidence of the fascist salute that they that they performed in public. It's safe to assume that they had been performing it in private. Yes. You know, what, what I wanted to say, that what's interesting to me is that how many people in the West actually don't recognize that phrase as a Nazi salute, which I... I think is interesting because I, I've read some opinions how people just think that it's a normal phrase. You know, they don't even recognize that it, this phrase has a history and a meaning, and actually that meaning is very dark. Oh, exactly. If you follow me, like, Sieg Heil doesn't mean, just work with me here, Sieg Heil doesn't mean Sieg Heil, it means hail victory. So if you were to hear... Uh, hail victory if you didn't know the context you might just mean oh yeah our team's gonna win when no seek heil means seek heil right exactly and uh somehow they've been able to once again kind of alter the lore of of this part of like uh, this part of ukrainian history because i i know that i've seen people uh iterate stories that jesus sorry <laughs> Yeah, we all here at DD Geopolitics have our pets, and we love our pets, but as anybody who has pets know, pets can be such jerks. I know, my god, she's like occupied and then dropped whatever she was chewing on. So anyway, I've actually seen people iterate a story that the glory to Ukraine came from well before the, the 20th century, and it's just such a fallacy, like... We know when it like this is a recorded this is recorded history by the polls. So I don't want to hear like Russian propaganda. These are from court dockets and um 
witness testimony. So this is the first instance for all intents and purposes of them publicly shouting glory to Ukraine. So yes, therefore, when Western governments sign off on a certain communiques on things like, you know, glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes, they might as well be saying, seek Heil. I mean, there really is nothing more to add. That's just, that's just the way it is. Um, so much more ominously, though, when, or still more ominously, because there's lots of ominous stuff, you know, that we've covered here. The murder of Poland's top police official, boasting about killing fellow Ukrainians who they think are cooperating or collaborating with the Poles. Um Introducing Slava Ukraine, Geroyam Slava, or Heroyam Slava, as the Ukrainians might pronounce it, with a fascist salute. And when the guilty verdict is uh, read out, Bandera yells at the judge, Blood and iron will decide between us. As we will cover, that was no idle threat. And then they get a second trial. At more more so in their kind of neighborhood, right? They get a second trial in Lvov. Yes, where the Ukrainian press covers Bandera rapturously. Right, and I think that this was was a very good um, propaganda gambit because they were able to speak in Ukrainian. They kind of had better control of the propaganda apparatus surrounding the trial. So. Yeah, this trial is definitely different than the Warsaw trial. Um, it basically is a repeat of a lot of the same things, except with a lot more sympathetic media coverage from the Ukrainian language media. So, but this, I think, what's relevant is that um, what Bandera says in his trial here, and this is a direct quote from the court documents of what he said, um, so the first part is a quote from Rosalinsky Liba, and then I'll be reading Rosalinsky Liba here quoting the court documents and what Bandera said because it was transcribed. Toward the end of his speech, Bandera mixed fanaticism, martyrdom, nationalism, fascism, and sentimentalism, and produced lines that Ukrainian nationalists have learned by heart for decades, just as they memorize the Decalogue of the Ukrainian nationalist. Quote, because in this trial, the question of assassinations of many persons organized by the OUN was investigated, it might appear that the organization does not cherish human life, either of other persons or of its members. I will respond to this very briefly, that people who are aware that they can lose their life at any moment in their job can appreciate the merit of life. We know the value of our and other lives. But our idea, as we understand it, is so huge that as it comes to its realization, not hundreds, but thousands of human lives have to be sacrificed in order to carry it out. Since I have lived for a year with the certainty that I will lose my life, I know what a person who has before him the perspective of losing his greatest treasure, which is life, endures. Yet even so, throughout this period, I did not feel what I felt when I sent other members to certain death. When I sent Lemek to the consulate, Lemek being the OUN terrorist who blew up the Soviet consulate, or the one who murders Minister Paraki, he said assassinated, not murdered, beg your pardon, the measure of our idea is not that we were prepared to sacrifice our lives, but that we were prepared to sacrifice the lives of others. 
Remarkable in this speech is the anti-factual and ideologically structured narrative which aimed to mobilize the emotions and demobilize the mind, something that will remain in Bandera's speeches and writings until his death and will make his followers regard him as the leader of the Ukrainian liberation movement or even a demigod. Classic propaganda, Bandera's speech was full of untrue but powerful statements. He stated, for example, that sending Matseko to his death was painful, whereas he actually disliked Matseko for helping the police catch the OUN member Mitsik and also for dealing unprofessionally with Piraki's murder. Most remarkably in Bandera's speech is that, quote, our idea is, in our understanding, so huge as as it comes to its realization, not hundreds, but thousands of human lives have to be sacrificed to carry it out. This claim is a continuation of Mikhanovsky's misanthropic and paranoid ideology, strengthened by Donsov's extreme nationalism, and the OUN's commitment to the ethnic and political mass violence that was an integral part of the permanent or national revolution. So, that's the second trial. And then, of course, Bandera is in Polish prison. Until, of course, um, I think it is, yes, 13 September 1939, because on 1 September 1939, uh, the German army crossed the border into Poland and started the Second World War. Wait! They told me this week that Russia started the Second World War when they invaded Poland. Mm, too bad. It was seven, 16 days after the Germans invaded, so <laughs> uh, I think the chronology is kind of um, confused there. By the way, um, as um, Stephen Kotkin, certainly no fan of the Soviet Union and no fan of Stalin covers in his biography of Stalin, the Soviets and the Germans were such allies and pals that when the Germans got over the demarcation line and Soviet reconnaissance had identified this, Stalin called the German military attaché at the time, uh, General Hans Krebs, into his office in the Kremlin and noted, um, I'm paraphrasing here, so this is from memory, and it'll be a bit dramatized. Ah, General, I see rather conveniently, one might say, that German forces are over the demarcation line that we agreed to and are now occupying the oil fields of Galicia. That is not what we agreed to. And Krebs protested that, oh, well, we need to destroy the Polish army there. Uh, we'll pull out. And Stalin said, mm, you might say that. I give you six hours to withdraw over the demarcation line or we will engage you as hostile forces dismissed general and krebs started to protest and Stalin looked up glared at him and said i said dismissed and so actually uh the germans and the soviets actually had a meeting engagement uh where about a hundred soldiers died um in that meeting engagement so uh this th yes these uh two nations were allies and stalin was really all for this it's like yeah, yeah, yeah not really um yes they like so much each other so much that they were shooting at each other and uh stalin didn't trust the germans when they said oh uh we'll definitely pull out on our side of the line trust us bro it's like yeah I, I i think not um we'll kick you out if we have to so um there's that bit of history back to bandera um so, 
this, I think, is... So Bandera escapes prison on 13 September 1939, because almost immediately the violence of the German invasion causes uh, Poland to uh, fall apart. And I think um, it's just worth uh, pausing here for a little bit to say something about the invasion of Poland. A few things, some myths. Uh, First, it was not fully an exemplary military operation. The Germans actually took fairly heavy casualties. They lost anywhere between 11,000 to 14,000 killed in action in four weeks, depending on how you count it. And the Poles, however, and the Poles were not in exactly lightly armed. They had a huge army, and in some of their counterattacks against the Germans, it wasn't all cavalry charging tanks. That's because the German army actually wasn't very mechanized. Nevertheless, the Poles lost about 80,000 men killed against the Germans, so more than five times as many. And um, the Polish army was already on the verge of collapse anyway when the Soviet army came in. And um, because they were on the verge of collapse, even though the Soviet invasion was absolutely botched in terms of its execution with all kinds of coordination and communication problems, the Soviets achieved an even more lopsided kill ratio against the Poles. But that's not to disrespect the Polish army. That's just reflective of the fact that they were in an impossible position by that point. And uh, many of their commanders and top political leaders had already fled. So a lot of Polish units were fighting without any orders or communication. Um, So I say that to portray or hope I convey a bit of the sense of chaos and doom that was engulfing Poland. And in the middle of this, we have the OUN. So, I quote again from Rosalinsky Lieba. We lean on him very heavily here because his book is truly magisterial. Um, We here at DD Geopolitics will definitely say this, and I'm pretty sure my co-host will endorse me on this. Um... This book is well worth your time and your money. You really must read it if you really want to understand a lot of what's happening to all of us and is happening to this world. So, I quote, In the short period of time between the German attack on Poland and the Soviet invasion, there was chaos in a political vacuum in western Ukraine. Before the Soviet army came to western Ukraine, some German units entered this territory and stayed for two weeks. At that time, the OUN was considering whether to conduct its national revolution. In some locations, it established a militia, which attacked and killed Jews, Poles, and Ukrainian political opponents. However, once the OUN realized that it was insufficiently prepared and that the political situation was not favorable for such an event, the leadership decided not to attempt to take power in the territory or to establish a state. In this short period of time, so just in two weeks, the OUN killed approximately 2,000 Poles in eastern Galicia and about 1,000 in Volhynia, and an unknown number of Jews and Ukrainian political opponents. At that time, Polish soldiers killed an unknown number of Ukrainians in response to OUN violence, and also because some Ukrainians welcomed the Soviet army, erected triumphal arches for them, and sang communist songs mixed with religious hymns. Jews became the victims of both sides during this period, so both the OUN and the Poles, and also one imagines the Germans. In Yavoriv, a small town 50 kilometers west of Lviv, for example, 
German troops, together with Ukrainian militiamen who were wearing yellow and blue armbands, destroyed the local synagogue and humiliated, tortured, beat, and murdered and otherwise mistreated the Jews. Bandera, whose visits overlapped with the first violent acts conducted by the OUN, never mentioned them in his writings, just as he did not mention the greater atrocities that the OUN and UPA later committed during and after the Second World War. In his brief autobiography from 1959, Bandera stated that in September 1939, the OUN began to establish partisan units that concerned themselves with the protection of the Ukrainian population and took possession of weapons and other military equipment for a future struggle. So, one of the central claims of Ukrainian nationalists is, uh, nuh-uh, Bandera got arrested later in 1941 by the Gestapo. He, he never was around any mass murders. He never did nothing. Whereas Rosalinsky Lieb is showing here, ah, he was in the area. He would, must have been aware of them, but he never mentioned them and never condemned them. It is therefore not unreasonable to assume that he was around there as the militia was getting organized, and he admits that they were doing that, that he was giving these orders to kill about the 3,000 Poles that we know about and the unknown number of Jews and Ukrainians these maniacs were killing in two weeks in September 1939. There's a deathly silence because I think both of my co-hosts are thinking, well, yeah, what does one say to that? I thought we would rap when he was escaping prison and he left to go to Lvov. And then he, once he realized that would be under Soviet control, he fled to Poland because that would be like the end of part one. I think the end of part one should be 22 June 1941, if you're okay with that. Yeah, okay. So, um, right. Well, uh, so yes, Bandera then flees over the border. Um, into what is called the General Gouvernement. So to explain that, because uh, in some of my tweets and some of our tweets, we've been referencing the General Gouvernement. So what happened to Poland? Poland was dismembered, wiped off the map um, in September at the end of September 1939. Uh, parts of Western Poland were absorbed into Germany, so what Germany had lost in 1918 due to the Treaty of Versailles and subsequent agreements with the government of Poland, um, and a little more. Um, so it fell under two Gauleiters, Erich Koch and Arthur Greiser, uh, who both were extremely infamous for their mistreatment of the Poles in the parts of uh, the former Poland that came into the Reich. Then. Um, of course, much of what is now Western Ukraine and also Western Belarus was absorbed into the Soviet Union, and therefore that is where those territories have remained. Uh, before, and I know we, we have some Polish uh, listeners, just uh, before you get too sad about losing those, um, in all of these places, uh, Poles were not only a minority, but um, there was a lot of tremendous ill feeling towards Poland. Whether that was justified or not is quite beyond it, but the point being is that these areas were kind of swampy and woody and more or less a pain in the butt. Whereas what Poland got after World War II was all of Silesia and most of East Prussia, which in addition to being better farmland is also 
were territories that were had a lot more ethnic Poles on them. So, but nonetheless, uh, Poland is dismantled. So what's left? Well, since Poland wasn't going to be given a state, uh, because Hitler and the Nazis had their own plans for how they intended to treat most, though not all Slavs, so the Slovaks got their own state. For example, the Romanians, well, that opens a can of worms, but we're going to argue for the sake here that they're half Slavic. Okay, they're allowed their state, uh, their states, but the Nazis have a very special animus against the Poles that is, um, I guess you could say, um, after uh, black people and Jews on top, top of who they hate the most and want to kill the most, it's then followed by Russians and then followed by Poles. And given what they do to the Poles, it's like, what? why are we even bothering to rank them at this point? But, you know, we have to somehow. So the general gouvernement is basically an occupation regime where the law is whatever the Nazis decide it is at any given point, and laws and decrees can change at any time, and even with laws and decrees, the Germans don't allow themselves to be constrained even by what they write down in a decree. So... A Polish person cannot protest, you can't do that to me, it's not covered by this decree. It's quite literally a case of where the Germans can just decide what the rules are, when what they feel like, when they feel like it. So the General Gouvernement is a site of absolute arbitrary terror, police power, and also anarchy. If you're Pol- if you're Polish, because there is no fixed written law, and you have absolutely no recourse to justice, so um, it's an absolute nightmare hellscape, hellscape terror land, um, where and also because the Germans have special plans for Poland, much of the civilian administration is um, dismissed. So right immediately, much of the Polish middle class is immediately destroyed or immiserated and uh, forced to and do things like become manual workers, factory workers, um, farmhands, or scramble desperately for the few remaining white collar jobs. Um, and if you and if it's bad for the polls, uh, yes, we're not. We don't have time. But um, uh, just try reading about the Warsaw and um, the Warsaw Ghetto if you can. Sometime, dear listeners, if you can stomach it, that is, um, because if rations are desperate for uh, Jews are desperate for Poles. They're even worse for Jews. And even in 1939, the Germans start cutting them a little bit each month by month by month by month. Um, so, um, yeah, this is the General Gouvernement. And uh, that is just a little small sample. I haven't gone anywhere near into it about the horror show that is um, occupied Poland. Now, the OUN is fleeing into this part of Poland. In particular, Bandera is going to Krakow. And what do he and his top lieutenants in see when they look at all of this? They're excited by it. They think, this is great. This is how we will rule Ukraine and what sort of principles we need to apply. So they're assiduously taking notes about what the Germans are doing and not with any horror, but like, yes, yes, I need to learn this lesson. Tell me how to do this. 
And of course, while they're uh, taking notes with um, sick sadistically on what um, can only be described as a corner of hell on earth, um, Bandera has enough time, of course, to get married, to have a nose job, and to organize a split in the OUM. Okay, what do I mean by the nose job? So, as he says, in 1939 or 1941, Bandera had an operation on his nose in Berlin. His nasal septum was either broken or damaged when he was force-fed through the nose during a hunger strike. Um, And he has also married his wife, and his daughter, Natalia, was born on 26 May 1941, his first child. He will have three. So, um... Then he goes for a spa cure in 1939 in Slovakia because, of course, he does. A hard-fighting Ukrainian nationalist can simply not do without a few weeks at the spa. Um, And he decides to move against the executive of the OUN. So we've described the OUN homeland executive, but then there's the OUN, as they sometimes called... um, themselves the leadership that's led by a man named Andrei Melnik. Now, Melnik is from the older generation. He had a peripheral part in the UNR, and he's been spending a lot of time trying to evade the Polish police and also the NKVD. Um, But he's more willing than Bandera to uh, suck up harder to the Germans and take orders, Um, And also, of course, just Bandera wants power in the organization. Since most OUN members lived in western Ukraine or eastern Poland, if you prefer, um, most OUN members in this split sided with Bandera. The Germans are looking on at this and aren't quite sure what to do because, as is typical of the Nazis, different factions of the Nazis are backing different factions of the OUN. Ostentatiously, though, on 10 February 1940 in Krakow, um, Bandera proclaimed a revolutionary leadership, or in Ukrainian, revolutsinyi provid, and Bandera became the leader of this new political body. This faction, which always called itself the OUM, to make this clear, became known as the OUNB. And the other part of the OUN, which also called itself the OUN because the other people are splitters, um, became known as the OUNM for Melnik. So OUNB for Bandera, OUNM for Melnik. And this will become familiar. So uh, Yaroslav uh, Hunka was therefore part of probably at some point the OUNM, not the OUNB, uh, because he ended up in the Waffen-SS Galician, who were the project of the OUNM. So before anybody gets any ideas that the OUNM were moderate, no, they were just more willing to suck up just a little bit harder to the Germans, but the OUNB was also willing, as we'll be getting to shortly, to suck up super hard to the Germans and get training from them. Uh, part of the reason that they organized this split is that... Um, Melnik and his associates are accused by Bandera of being married to Jewish women. So, um, therefore, they must all be Bolshevik agents. Or something. You know, once again, it's this old old tired and boring lie and saw of blame the Jews. Um, Because, of course, eh, why not? Um, So, yep, boring. It's like they can't come up with anything 
more original than Nazi, you know, supposed Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. What, well, I think it's kind of interesting. You you kind of laughed at it earlier. Is that uh, Bandetta, Bandetta's fascination with Slovakia, uh, going to spa there? Because while the OUNM was very much right off the bat uh, interested in, in aligning with the Nazis, the OUMB was more attracted to the religious fascist uh, regimes, so the, that of Slovakia and Croatia. So um, before they kind of turned to the to the Nazis full on. I miss that. Oopsies. Oh, I just think that it's it was interesting to point out because as you said, the OUNM was very much willing to suck up to to Nazi the Nazis right off the bat, but the B kind of explored more more um, facets of fascism because uh, Bandera had a very uh, strong affinity for Ante Pavlich as well as Mussolini. So he wasn't real, wasn't a staunch Hitlerite right off the bat. Uh, but he did admire, as I said, with them taking assiduous notes and the generous general gouvernement. Maybe he wasn't quite a Hitlerite in terms of wanting to suck up to Hitler, but he did admire the methods of the Nazis and in particular of the SS. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, the politics here get kind of schizo and, con- and confusing. So it sounds like we're arguing, as a matter of fact, this is why... We need several parts for this because this isn't simple, as you can see. This is complicated. It's a bit like, um, what? What just happened? Like, why are these guys allowed to rampage in Western Ukraine for two weeks, killing thousands of people? And why have I never heard about this? It's like, well, now you know about it. And now you also know why everybody was so furious when the Canadian Parliament was um, applauding Hunka. Or rather, I should say, normal decent people um there are some people who might be normal who are not so decent who were just like i don't see what the big deal is i do want to read the um the official oumb statement for when um expressing their wish to collaborate with nazi germany and this is this is when germany's um approaching um, they say, we treat the coming German army as the army of allies. We try before they're coming to put life in order on our own as it should be. We inform them that the Ukrainian authority is already established. It is under control of the OUN and under the leadership of Stepan Bandera. It matter- all matters are regulated by the OUN and the local authorities are ready to establish friendly relations with the army in order to fight together against Moscow and collaborate with Nazi Germany. Yes. Um, and also in terms of them not being original and just the kind of the being these uh, very yucky fascist fanboys, um, from 31 March to 3 April 1941, the OUNB held what it called the Second Great Congress of the Ukrainian Nationalists after the first one in Vienna, where it legalized itself and delegalized the OUNM. And it established a few things. Namely, it la- named uh, Bandera as either Vojd or uh, Providnik, because um, both mean leader in Ukrainian, like Führer in German. So, um, and they also adopted the slogan um, Adin Narid, Adin Pravid, Adna Vlada, or um, uh, One People, One Leader, and one government, because um, although it's meant to be like an imitation of um, uh, 
one people, uh, one Ger- one Germany, one leader, ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer. Um, Vlada in Ukrainian kind of means government, so it's a bit like, uh, well, you kind of mangled it there, guys, as you always kind of do. Um, and here's another thing, the sort of pedantic thing as you might often hear about, you need to listen to Ukrainian voices, Ukrainian this, Ukrainian that, and it seems like Ukrainians can't stop themselves from using the bloody adjective Ukrainian. Like, could you please think of another adjective, like beautiful, or less than ideal, or something, anything other than Ukrainian. But uh, it got its start here, and I want to quote um, in terms of what their ideal for a uh, new Ukrainian nation-state would achieve. Um, The struggle for the strength and good of the Ukrainian nation is the basis of our worldview. Only on the path of revolutionary struggle against the invaders will the Ukrainian nation achieve its state. The equality of all Ukrainians in terms of rights and obligations um, towards uh, the nation and the state is the point of struggle of the OUN. The non-Ukrainians in the Ukrainian territories where the OUN state would be established were not mentioned, but it is known from other documents, we'll be getting to them, were to be expelled or killed. However, the author specified that the, and this is where I went on my my little rant, The Ukrainian nation and its state will become the owner of all ground and waters under and over earth resources, industry, and communication roads. The Ukrainian land is for Ukrainian peasants, the factories and plants for the Ukrainian workers, Ukrainian bread for the Ukrainian people. So yes, the excessive use of um, Ukrainian, Ukrainian, Ukrainian. But what's interesting to me is that... Well, an honest question. Uh, did they ever try to define exactly what it is? The reason why I'm asking this and making this comment is that it made me think about, well, just a, l- a little bit of history here for uh, for listeners. Uh, if they think that the neo-Nazi problem that Ukraine is experiencing currently is something that is unique to them. It's not because actually uh, what what they were able to do in Ukraine, uh, they also tried to pull off in Russia in like late 90s, early 2000s, where we had our, we never got big because our government really didn't like it, but uh, we had our neo-Nazi movement and their whole thing was Russia is for Russians. You guessed it right. And so uh, a lot of Russians obviously didn't like it and they always made fun of them because they asked them a very legitimate question, but who is a Russian? Because obviously if we're talking about Nazis, they're all about pure blood and that whole thing. But it's something that is very difficult to define. So I'm curious if they actually had any definitions for what a real pure Ukrainian was. Uh, We'll be getting into that a bit in this episode and some in subsequent episodes because we're coming up to the end of this episode. But um, we could be here actually all day discussing like the set of insane documents that the uh, OUNB discussed between 31 March uh, 1941 at their Congress and then 21 June 1941, because in those three months they were feverishly preparing for the invasion of the Soviet Union and what to do, and we haven't yet got to the insanity. But you raise the point, and it's something that I think is very well uh, done, which is that um, 
of all people, even though it has nothing to do with Russia or Ukraine, um, the English wit historian, novelist, and poet Daniel Defoe actually wrote in the 17, early 1700s about the pure-blooded Englishman and about how it's kind of impossible to define what the pure-blooded Englishman is, given all the, or rather, I should say, the true-born Englishman, because as he writes here, and it could apply also to uh, Russians and even more so to Russians than to Englishmen. Um, Thus from a mixture of all kinds began the heterogeneous thing of an Englishman, uh, in eager rapes and furious lust begot, sorry, it's the 1700s, folks, uh, betwixt a painted uh, Britain and a Scot, whose gendering offspring quickly learned to bow and yoke their heifers to the Roman plough. From whence a Mongol half-breed race uh, there came, with neither name nor nation, speech nor fame, in whose hot veins new mixtures quickly ran, infused between a Saxon and a Dane and a Dane, while their ranked daughters to their parents uh, just received all nations with promiscuous lust, this nauseous brood directly did contain the well-extracted blood of Englishmen. And then he just goes on and on throughout the poem of all the different uh, influences from all the time on the pure-blooded Englishmen. So it's like, yeah. um, and what applies in uh, England is even more true, I would argue, in Ukraine and in Russia. But uh, no, the OUN, as far as I can tell, didn't really define it, but they did certainly define who they were going to exterminate. And how they defined Ukrainians, well, we'll get that into the next episode, because uh, we haven't quite yet Roman met Roman Shuhevich, albeit don't worry. When we're mentioning him here, th talking about the OUNB and its leadership from 1940 onwards, he's very much there, but he's a lot more so than Bandera going to be the star of the next episode that we do on this. Um, so one thing that, like with a lot of fascists that they did, was less define who we are, because that's always problematic for fascists, and a lot more define what they were against. And the first people they were against were Jews, as they said. The Jews in the USSR are the main pillar of the Bolshevik regime and the avant-garde of Moscovite imperialism in Ukraine. The, the OUN combats Jews as a pillar of the Moscow Bolshevik regime. Um, in the same paragraph of, the, of this resolution, they denied the violent nature of Ukrainian nationalism and the fact that anti-Semitism was an integral part of this movement. While blaming the Soviet Union and Russia for the anti-Semitism in Ukraine and in the OUM, <clears throat> I quote, The Moscow Bolshevik government exploits the anti-Jewish sentiments of the Ukrainian masses in order to divert their attention from the real perpetrator of evil and in order to channel them in times of uprising into uh, pogroms of Jews. They similarly introduced a range of fascist principles and rituals, which became obligatory for all members of the movement, and which, after the establishment of the Ukrainian state, were to become obligatory for all citizens. The red and black flag, which symbolizes blood and soil, blut und Boden. These colors referred to the racist and proto-fascist German blood and soil ideology, which suggests the inseparability of a people and their living space as well as an attraction to the soil, which acquired spiritual and mythological connotations. Furthermore, the OUNB employed the fascist salute of raising the right arm, quote, slightly to the right, slightly above the peak of the head, while calling glory to Ukraine, Slava Ukraina. The response which to was, with also a fascist salute, 
glory to the heroes, Heroium Slava. The greeting, glory to the le leader, Vojjevi Slava, had already been applied to Melnik since the earlier Second Great Congress of the OUN in Rome. Obligatory holidays were also proclaimed. Unification Day, the Day of the Revolutionary Heroes, the Day of Struggle. The Führer Principe was established with the notion of the Providnik, and not a Vojd, because Vojd had been reserved for Melnik. Um, so, also some nice time to be uh, petty. Um, now, what were their, some of their practical preparations here? There are a set of documents where um, the following OUN leaders primarily, but certainly others, uh, Stepan Bandera, Stepan Lenkovsky, Roman Shukhevitz, and Yaroslav Stetsko set, it, set out in a set of struggle and activities documents. As they said, stated, the goal of the revolution was to establish, quote, totalitarian power of the Ukrainian nation in the Ukrainian territories, which would need a, quote, strong political and military organization in all Ukrainian territories, unquote. That is to say, the OUNB. A huge challenge for the OUNB revolution and its state were the minorities. The authors of struggle and activities divided them into A, Quote, our friends, i.e. the members of the enslaved nations, so this includes uh, Balts and even Belarusians who want to rise up against Moscow, as they keep calling it, and B, our enemies, Muscovites, Poles, and Jews. Since the first group, and they've said we're not anti-Semitic, but then they go say we have to kill all the Jews, because, you know, why not? Um... Since the first group was expected to help the OUN conduct the revolution against the Soviet Union, they were to have the same rights as Ukrainians in the future OUNB state. The second group, so remember, Muscovites, Poles, and Jews, would have to be, quote, destroyed in the struggle, in particular those who protect the regime, unquote, of their country, i.e. the USSR. This corresponded with the principle, quote, our power should be horrible for its opponents, terror for enemy aliens and our traitors, unquote. There was to be no mercy for Ukrainians who disagreed with the politics of the OUNB. The Ukrainian people would have to understand that the OUNB was the only power in Ukraine. To convince the masses of this, OUNB members tried to frighten the resistant parts of the nation by assuring them that they would be punished, or, it should be added, killed. Ostensibly, the OUNB activists were also not to fight against the Red Army or NKVD units because they needed to preserve um, cadres. Using the back to Rosalinsky Liba, using uh, the political vacuum that would follow the withdrawal of the Soviet authorities was, for the OUNB, more important than warfare. While taking advantage of the political vacuum, the OUNB would establish the organs of the state. The officials of the state and ordinary citizens would welcome the incoming German army, as uh, Chebu has already quoted. Um, and then, once this was done, they were to proclaim the rebirth of uh, the state and to say that it was real. And for this purpose, OUMB members were to organize meetings in all possible villages, towns, and cities and read out their manifesto about the renewal of the Ukrainian state. The text of this manifesto was, <clears throat> In the name of all Ukraine, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists under the leadership of Stepan Bandera proclaims the Ukrainian state, for which entire generations of the best sons of Ukraine have given their lives. 
the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which under the leadership of its creator and leader, Yevhen Konovalets, conducted an intense struggle for freedom in the last decades of Muscovite Bolshevik oppression, calls upon the whole Ukrainian nation not to lay down its arms until there is sovereign Ukrainian authority over all Ukrainian lands. Sovereign Ukrainian authority will guarantee the Ukrainian people law and order, the universal development of all its forces, and the satisfaction of all its needs. All the people gathered, including women and children, were to commit themselves to the leadership of Stepan Bandera and swear an oath of loyalty to the Ukrainian state. They were expected to swear that they would serve the Ukrainian state with their lives, defending it to the last drop of their blood. At the end of the proclamation, every Ukrainian fit for service was to be inducted into the Ukrainian National Army and mobilized for immediate deployment. One of the tasks of recruited militiamen and soldiers who had already sworn an oath to Bandera was to take disturbing persons and survivals from the enemy side, including uh, marauders and Nedobitki. I don't know what Nedobitki is, but we've heard about marauderi in this war from their place of residence to a, quote, hidden and inaccessible place, forests or mountains, etc., where particular liquidation actions are to be conducted, unquote. The OUNB members, and in particular the OUNB militiamen, were to advise to follow the rule, quote, during the time of chaos and confusion, i.e. before Ukrainian state power is established and while the Germans are invading, it is permissible to liquidate undesirable Polish, Muscovite, and Jewish activists, unquote. Moreover, Ukrainian activists were obliged to compile blacklists with all personal data of important Poles, NKVD people, informers, provocateurs, and all important Ukrainians who in the critical time would try to make, quote, their politics and thereby threaten the decisive mindset of the Ukrainian nation, unquote. So, um... Part of the OUNB, and here's something that you might find interesting, Lydia, and our listeners would find interesting. Part of the where they defined who was not Ukrainian as opposed to who was, was set out in the formative document of the security service of the OUN, which they formed, um, or the Slujba Bjezpeki, SB. You might be aware of an organization called the SBU. Well, here's the SB. So, the formative document of the SBAY was, I quote Rosalinsky Liba here, unambiguous about what to do with non-Ukrainians. We have to remember that these existing elements have to be, as the main pillar of the NKVD and Soviet authority in Ukraine, exterminated while we are establishing the new revolutionary order in Ukraine. These elements are Moscali sent to the Ukrainian territories in order to strengthen Muscovite power in Ukraine, Jews as individuals, as well as a national group, aliens, um, especially various Asians and with whom Moscow colonized Ukraine, Poles in the western Ukrainian territories who have not ceased about the reconstruction of a greater Poland. The OUNB used similar standards to define the enemies of the Ukrainian nation in the eastern Ukrainian collective farms. In this regard, the OUNB classified as enemies all the strangers who came to the collectives to oversee the exploitation of the collectivized villages, Jews working in the collectives, as well as the implementers of Bolshevik power, all representatives of Bolshevik power, and informers. I think this is important because a lot of 
people, a lot of people who want to whitewash the history will kind of lay more of the, um, the blame on the Nazis. You know, they kind of came in and used the Ukrainians to do these crimes, but it, it's very certainly obvious that the, the fascism and the militancy was already there. It was already there, well and developed. They had their own list of enemies on their own territory. Um, so it's, I think that's important that they didn't really need to draw direct in, <laughs> inspiration from the Nazis because they had their own sort of ideology already set in place. And it wouldn't be have any, you know further echoes of um, this um, to wrap up here of this war if they didn't engage in some psyops when they were to infiltrate. And we'll be getting into how successful they were infiltrating and what they did afterwards next episode. Um, but among other things they were to do was to spread rumors about the death of Stalin, the start of a revolution in Moscow. We, we've heard about this. Putin is dying. There's an uprising in Moscow, blah, 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 blah. Um, the... Um, Ukrainian national OUMB activists were to put up the yellow and blue flag, the red and black flag at every administrative building, paint tridents on buildings, print posters and hang them in public spaces, um, greet OUMB, uh, urge the population to greet OUMB members, cheer and greet German troops in the name of Stepan Bandera, organize funerals for dead revolutionaries. Um, and also promulgate various slogans, which basically all feature the adjective Ukra Ukrainian. Um, and they also state in some of these documents, in for those who say that, oh, well, Bandera was uh, inclined to democracy, which is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. In the Ukrainian state, the OUN should become the only political organization of the Ukrainian nation. All who want to work for the good of the Ukrainian nation should, and remain in the realm of legality, which the OUN applies to its members, should join the OUN. The Ukrainian nation is the OUN. The OUN is the Ukrainian nation. All people under the banner of the OUN. And, of course, people were to be, those children who were in schools were to, taught to be love and admire Bandera, the organization of Ukrainian nationalist and to be educated in their ideals such as it were such as they were now this basically is the program that these maniacs have in mind and we'll talk about how they try and put it into practice as well as all the other sick stuff that they get up to in the war but we'll leave the war for there and i think it's a good place to close this down and close down with comments and discussion so what do you guys think what do you think, Lydia? I actually think that there are definitely a lot of, obviously, there are a lot of similarities. And that's why it's important to study the history, because then you can see a lot of the parallels. Because I don't, I don't actually know if it's exactly relevant, but <clears throat> made me think about how the whole point, well, not the whole point, but one of the points of the Minsk agreements <clears throat> was to give um, Donbass uh, autonomy, kind of, you know, similar to the system uh, that we have in Russia. But, uh, and what you have been saying actually made me think about why the current Ukrainian uh, regime would never be okay with it, because that actually goes against um, 
basically everything that they believe in because they do need one nation and one government and everything centralized and everything controlled ideologically. I think it's important to always explore these kind of lesser known fascistic movements that were going on during well, pretty much after World War One, which was kind of a natural reaction to that sort of sort of war. Um, because these smaller fascistic movements are very unique in their own right and very specific to their nations, but they get swept under the rug and all of the blame gets piled onto the, either Germany or now, I guess, <laughs> in 2023, they gets piled onto the Soviets somehow. But it's important to, to understand these, these sort of nationalistic, very unique movements that were taking place and taking inspiration from each other because they're... It was, this wasn't that long ago, and these are still very much part of the fabric of the countries of Europe, whether they want to acknowledge them or not. So I really, I really enjoyed this episode. I'm excited for part two. I think you raised an excellent point, Lydia, which is that I think if you study the OUNB, a lot of things about the contemporary Ukrainian state that just don't make sense start to in a very insane way makes sense because when I read those um, sort of plans of activities and struggle, there's just something utterly manic about it. Um, now, all fascism is manic and all about manic, and a lot of it is about manic activity, action for action's sake, constantly trying to conquer new frontiers, never ever being satisfied, you know, Paxton's famous formula, radicalization or entropy, and the OUN was very much here in a radicalization phase, is um, also, um, like all fascists, there is no great program of uh, this is what we're going to do to give uh, make people happy. A lot of it is just we're going to kill the people we don't like, and uh, trust us, we'll look after all your material needs and develop all of its forces, as they said. But there's no actual program there for uh, what Ukraine is going to do and how it's going to uh, develop. There's just a lot of manic hatred of enemies. So it's a lot more of... And so, like all fascisms, this kind of Ukrainian nationalism is very much based on hate, and it burns, therefore, very, very brightly. But that's the whole thing. It burns. Um, it isn't a program for sustainability. It isn't a program for the future. Um, as um, Putin himself wrote in his op-ed in July 2021, I think it was, so the essay on the historical unity between the Russian and Ukrainian peoples, that uh, nationalism on the basis of hatred simply is not sustainable and is dangerous to its neighbors. And this is a program where, in all of these documents as we've read out, they're very much quite explicit about that they're going to commit mass murder. So this is also why we get very upset when people try to pretty this up or minimize this or say that they were struggling for Ukrainian independence. Exactly. It completely takes away the facade of just a looking for an independent Ukrainian state with democracy and rainbows and multiculturalism. No, it was... 
It was a Ukrainian state built on blood and soil and with the full intent at the outs at the onset to eradicate those outsiders or who they called their enemies. So it was always built on that. Thank you all for listening if you've made it this far. And we look forward to part two. Till next time.